Welcome to the Bailey. This is the show where we want information. 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 By hook or by crook, we will get it. I'm your host, Yassine Maschot, and today's topic is going to be self-defense. The contours of it, the legitimacy of it, and whether or in what way it should change. And uh, we're going to introduce today's panel. Uh, Let's start with Edmund Nelson. Welcome back. Hey, I haven't been here since sex versus violence. So the problems in self-defense is that even when you execute, you know, some form of self-defense, you're going to run into major legal issues very frequently. And even if you don't, you'll often be put into a jury of your peers, which can be even worse in some ways, depending on how favorable or unfavorable they view the victim And there's also some issues regarding executing such self-defense measures can often lead to more harm than good for the average individual because the other person will become more aggressive. All right, cool. And uh, Kulak, welcome back. So you want to talk about the personal armament or using personal nukes as self-defense, right? Yes. Obviously, everyone should have a dead man switch attached to their own personal (laughs) nuke so that the government knows they can't drone strike you if you're in a major city. But but beyond that, no, I'd say I'm for pretty much the maximum expanse of um, self-defense laws. I'm not particularly because I'm attached to any kind of statistical argument or or um, theory about deterrence leading to a polite society. I just believe that people fundamentally should be in a position where they're mentally rehearsing defending their own life and liberty because that's a necessary skill and idea to develop within themselves to eventually defend themselves from the state. All right. And Xantos Cell, or Xantos for short, welcome to the podcast. Hello. So I think I'm going to be end up being in the middle here. Uh, I think that the data is really muddy for self-defense and somehow selection bias is even more of a powerful force than normal. You can make the data come out any way you want. But even that being said, I think it's fairly clear that having strong self-defense laws is a net negative for society as a whole. But even that being said, I think it's a strong net positive for individuals because individuals have varying levels of risk associated with how they go about their daily lives. And that sometimes the negative consequences for not being able to defend yourself can be so enormous that giving up the power over your own life essentially uh, is, is not worth it and a society that has that structures its laws such that c- citizens are discouraged or even prevented from defending themselves ha- has gone wrong somewhere cool so i anticipate that over the course of this discussion we will cite several high profile cases of potential or arguable self-defense they wouldn't be high profile if they weren't arguable some might argue they're high profile because they aren't very arguable but yeah maybe in terms of my own position i broadly agree with the the current jurisprudence in the united states in terms of when self-defense is permissible when it's uh, justified at least on paper with regards to how it is implemented in practice could that could there could be like a gap in that process as you can tell from like the guns episode i am very very much pro arming the civilians i own guns i carry a gun and even with that admission i also have to add that a big motivator for me carrying a gun is not really 
fear for my own safety. I live in a, an extremely safe area. I'm six foot two. I, I've never felt threatened or felt that I was in danger just like walking around my neighborhood. I've never been the victim of an assault or a robbery or a theft. Uh, it's not something that is a realistic risk for me to consider. However, I have to admit that like a big motivator for me to, to carry a gun besides just political purposes is how fucking dumb I would feel if I was the victim of a, of a crime and I just happened to not be armed that day. That fear of embarrassment is a big motivator, which I have to admit to. <laughs> More broadly, talking about kind of like the jurisprudence of how self-defense is litigated in the United States, I more or less agree with it. I agree that you do not have a duty to retreat. I agree that your use of force should be proportional to the threat. Those are principles that I, I'm broadly in agreement with. Some states also, which we'll discuss later, some states also impose an additional layer of protection for people accused of assault or other crimes in which they can raise uh, a successful self-defense claim. So Florida is, is like the highest profile one, but a lot of other states will reimburse you for the time lost, for the legal expenses lost, if the prosecutor pursues an assault case and you succeed on self-defense. This is intended to be kind of an, an additional layer of protection to safeguard that ability and also intended to discourage prosecutors from pursuing justified uses of force. So, Kulak. What's the logic in Florida specifically regarding the reimbursement having that for prosecutions of assault that appear to be self-defense, but not say like the prosecutor maliciously or falsely prosecuting anything else? Yeah, so maybe maybe like a good starting point is just to establish Florida's stand your ground law because I I am extremely frustrated around the discourse around it because just people do not understand what it means. So just to set kind of some common ground in terms of what the reality is, the quote unquote stand your ground law in Florida is a bit of a misnomer. Stand your ground specifically, all it means is that you when you use force, including deadly force, whether or not you had a duty to retreat from the altercation first before resorting to force. And the overwhelming majority of states in the United States do not impose a duty to retreat. You are not required to leave a scene or an altercation before you have to resort to force, deadly or otherwise. What the conditions are, I mean, state by states are going to vary in terms of what the specific conditions are. But generally, if you have a, if you have a right to be in a place, then you have a right to stay in that place. Uh, you do not have to retreat before resorting to force. The main exceptions in this area are states in New England that do impose a duty to retreat. But even then, it's like a very specific examination. First, they'll look at, was retreat even like practicable? Is it even possible for you to even try? Can you do it in a, in a safe manner? So even then, it's a little bit constrained in terms of when, of when you can use it. So all I'm saying is that Florida is by no means unusual when it comes to whether or not you have a duty to retreat. What gets confused with the discussion around the Florida stand your ground law is that Florida also added additional uh, protections when it comes to prosecuting what they would consider defensive use of force. So uh, there's reimbursement for time lost and legal expenses paid for a successful acquittal of a prosecution. And this is intended to compensate the person 
uh, for having gone through it and also serve to discourage prosecutors from pursuing it. And they also introduce like a bunch of procedural safety valves where, you know, if you get charged with murder, then you can ask for uh, a hearing in front of a judge and, and you can argue like immediately before a trial, look, this is clearly self-defense and the judge has the power to dismiss based on just that procedural hearing. You don't have to go through the stress expense and time of an actual trial before you get acquitted based on a, like a valid self-defense claim in terms of why, what the justification is for introducing this safety mechanism uh, within generally it's only used for assault. Uh, but it does apply to other crimes if you can successfully argue for them. I think in large part, it's um, it's a way to venerate the application of the Second Amendment within this country. So a big reason why people carry firearms, or at least what, why they claim they, they carry firearms, is for self-defense. And this is a way to enshrine that exercise within within the legal system. It provides breathing room to allow people to carry, to exercise their second amendment rights. At least that's what I think is the justification of it. So essentially Florida, because they want to incentivize lawful self-defense, they're willing to compensate and throw in all these extra safeguards with regards to um, if you get prosecuted for them and it comes out that no, it was lawful that you aren't, aren't assuming those expenses. Yes. That, like, I don't know, that kind of makes since to me, it's just legally, I'm like, okay, but what about the people who are wrongfully prosecuted for, say, drug smuggling or opening a business that the prosecutor claims is falsely fraudulent or whatever? Like, like it would seem that once you're going to go like, no, this is lawful behavior, we want to incentivize it, so we're going to compensate you for your time lost and expenses for um having undergone a prosecution it would seem the natural next argument would be okay why aren't we doing this to everyone who's found not guilty yeah i i think the the well i'll just like give my my guess i'm guessing that justifiable uses of force are seen in a more benevolent light and whether or not they're illegal is a more of a hair splitting exercise uh because you know if you uh, kill someone in self-defense, there's no argument that the person is dead. That's, that's established. The only thing left is whether or not you had, you were justified in killing that person. And because it's on such a, like a, a razor's edge sometimes in terms of whether or not the person is guilty or not guilty, then they, I, I'm, I'm guessing that that's like a big motivator for adding the safety valve to it. Xantos. I also think there's a there's a component of we feel strongly as a society that you should be able to defend yourself. And because of that, you get more protection and more benefit of the doubt for defending yourself than you would for other crimes that you may or may not have committed. And you mentioned the New England laws that kind of establish a duty to retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, does that also apply like if you're defending someone else like i'm imagining the classic horror movie scenario where the kids are upstairs the killer's on the stairs and the babysitter's in the in the kitchen with the butcher and is deciding whether she's going to grab the butcher knife and go to defend the kids or not like is that illegal in new england yeah generally um when it comes to self-defense it's not just self-defense it's what's nested in there is defense of others as well if you if you look at the the map of where stand your ground applies you can see that it's is most of the country and it's either explicitly done by statute or by case law. 
All right, I'm I'm just mentally going through all the horror movies I've seen, and which and which screen <laughs> scream queens would or would not go to jail in New England versus Florida. It's an interesting exercise. <laughs> it generally does not include your home. Like if you're in your home, you have no duty to retreat because of the castle doctrine. But they're babysitters; they're in someone else's home. Mm, yeah, I, like, <laughs> so we're not going to be able to um, cover every single permutation. Uh, we we necessarily have to talk in broad strokes, Edmund. So if you think like about common scenarios, there's like the most common scenario that the average person encounters is that it's around midnight and the bar just closed and there's some drunk guy who's being very aggressive. Um, this has happened to me like five times in the course of two years. I used to live in a very dangerous area with lots of drunk people and in those sorts of scenarios, you'll end up with a situation where some drunk guy is going to try to beat beat you. And in that kind of scenario, I think the optimal strategy would be to run away in spite of standard ground laws saying that you shouldn't. Yeah. Or rather, that you don't have to. It's not necessarily about, like, should you be allowed to? It's should you. Edmund, you're, you're a patron, an, a th- another patron of the bar in this scenario? I was waiting outside in the train station outside of the bar. I see. I only ask because I, I have some experience with a very similar situation, except my grandfather owns like a CD dive bar in a bad part <laughs> of town. And he like probably three or four times a month has to like brandish a firearm at a patron and get them <laughs> to be like, get the fuck out of here. Can you tell us more about that? Have you, have you been, uh, were you present during those situations? Uh, a time or two, yes. Okay. It's not the most comforting situation to be in because, you know, a normal rational human when confronted with a handgun and you, the other person has, you know, no weapon whatsoever would just obviously leave because you're outgunned, right? But drunk, very drunk people who need to have a firearm brandished at them are known to be significantly less rational in their threat assessment. And so, you know, sometimes you... It's not enough just to brandish the firearm with them. He's had to punch people out a couple of times. And it just seems like the risk is so much higher when alcohol is involved, for example, of people making bad decisions. Yeah, I'm sure we can uh, contemplate plenty of scenarios where legally you would be justified in using force, potentially even deadly force, but it doesn't render it uh, to be a good idea. Did you want to say more about that, Edmund? So you talked about the guy branching a firearm. So this is a video of uh, Bruce Liddell at a protest this summer this is a guy like trying to calm people down um using a tactic called de-escalation which is one of the most important tactics in like stopping people from injuring you and i think in general force should be your last resort it should be one of your resorts but it should be the last thing on the list behind de-escalation and running away because here you don't get anybody hurt and there's a lot less problems um, this is like a common example of like the scenario I was discussing. Yeah. So one of my, one of my concerns actually with the exercise of the Second Amendment, would you would anyone carrying a firearm for personal protection? Is I have to admit that there's definitely a confrontational mindset uh, that I think veers into fantasy with a lot of people that talk about why they carry a firearm. They have these kind of like elaborate scenarios in mind where they have a gun. They're going to be present during the commission of a crime and they're going to be the ones that are going to stop it. The The risk or the chance of that happening is so 
extremely low. Uh, and I think it, perhaps it primes some people too far into this hero mentality where they see one of these scenarios in relatively innocuous, uh, circumstances. And I think, uh, the example of, uh, Michael Dreschkel from uh, Florida is, is one that fits the bill. You, you see that kind of, that kind of thing a lot in movies set in Texas where there's a crowd of people carrying firearms and they're all going to prevent the commission of a crime. Yeah. And just look at any like CCW concealed carry weapon forum and you'll see plenty of, I don't know what to call them. <laughs> I guess internet tough guys that just say, you know, like every time you walk into a place, make sure you have a plan of exit, like don't have your back to anything. And it's just like, dude, you're just like at an IHOP, like calm down. Nothing is happening. Like realistically, nothing is happening. Uh, but they, they talk about this in, in, in different ways. And like, you know, some of them like carry four pistols and like eight mags. And it's just like, why do you need like 200 bullets for today? Like what, what do you think is happening to, to get to that point? And, you know, people familiar with my history, I used to be part of the John Brown Gun Club. Uh, we attended protests heavily armed, but in my mind, I always thought of it as as a performative act because at least my intent was to normalize the existence of firearms. I had no realistic ideation that we were actually going to get into like an actual gunfight or that our weapons would like not be a liability under such a circumstance. I just saw it as as more of a basically justified LARPing. Uh, so I didn't have any fantasies that you know we were going to save the day with with our gear. Did you have a round chambered while you protested it? No. Well, in the pistols that were holstered, yeah, a round was chambered because that's what you. I think it's what is that called? Israeli carry or something? Do I have that right? Israeli carrying is when you carry the gun uh, without a bullet. Oh, never mind. So the standard practice for defensive gun carrying, whether it's in your like by your bedside or in your holster that you carry, is that you have a round chambered because you do not want to like pull out a gun and then fiddle with the slide to make sure that you properly rack it. That is just not a good idea. This is in contrast to Israeli carry where you carry a firearm, but the round is never chambered which I, I don't agree with. I don't think that's uh, best practices. So when it comes to uh, pistols, yeah, a round is chambered. But when it comes to long guns that we had, we all agreed that it didn't make, it wasn't a good idea to, to chamber a round in the long guns. That, that's, what, that's intelligent gun handling, right? That's when you get yeah. good outcomes. There was, I forget the name of the incident, but there was like some something similar to that where protesters were carrying long rifles and clearly did not have good firearm handling practices and like three people got shot accidentally Mm -hmm. i think you're talking about in uh, louisiana with the not fucking around coalition yes yes, (laughs) which is a which is a great name they had an accident well i would call them negligent discharge during one of their demonstrations and i think like three people got got shot it was it also added the a nice bit of camaraderie because we met with the uh, a militia, one of the three percenters. And when they let us in to their area, they ha- they had us do like a weapons check. They they checked our weapons to make sure that no round was chambered in the long guns, but they didn't ask anything about our pistols. So we came up with this practice for safety independently. But then we found out that like even the right wing militia did the same thing. So like with 
We're veering off topic to talking about guns instead of talking about self-defense. <laughs> <laughs> so well, in the case of guns... Admittedly, like, you know, guns are going to play a big role in self-defense discussions. Sure. So in, in guns, one of the problems is that the studies regarding guns have um, say that some small percentage of guns are used every year, but that number was suspiciously close to Lizard Man's constant. <laughs> and if you look at like total gun, you know, gun hospital injuries, it's low. But the problem with that counter argument is that guns, the primary value is not the actual firing of the weapon, but just having the weapon at all mm-hmm. and just showing I have a gun. I got a gun. Yeah. Go ahead, Xantos. That that kind of ties into the, the what I was talking about earlier. And you're referencing, Edmund, the, the NPR link, right? Yes. Which I very much agree. I think that all the a lot of the data for self defense and for gun use is just really muddy, and you can kind of because it's so muddy and so easy to choose what kinds of incidents you want to count where, you can kind of make it come out looking like whatever you want. You know, if you want to make it look like using guns in self defense is a very positive has very positive outcomes. You know, the data is there to support that. If you want to make it look like it has terrible outcomes. And nobody should ever carry a gun. You know, the data is there for that, too. So it's really hard to rely on hard numbers. So my question, sort of anecdotally, you said your your father owned a CD dive bar and pulled a gun like three times a month, did you say? Probably. So it's my grandfather. This was this right. was a little while ago. But yeah, something like that. Okay. How many times did he actually fire the weapon? As far as I know, never. Okay. That sounds about right with my understanding of how people who own guns use guns. And how many times do you think he reported the display of the weapon to police? To police? As far as I know, never as well. Yeah. So, I mean, this is like a big problem. You you run into epistemological helplessness when it comes to figuring out which study is the correct one. Because on one side, you have an estimated 2.2 to 2.5 million gun uses. And I'm putting that in quotes. Uh, annually that represents the high end of of the estimates it's hard to to get like a a real number on it because of uh definitional issues you don't have to actually you know fire the weapon and even if you fire the weapon you don't actually have to hit the person and you can skip all of that by just displaying a firearm or even just announcing a firearm that could be enough to deter a perpetrator so it's hard to get real numbers on it and all we have is anecdotes and I and I get I encounter some just from my job where I do see the use of firearms either by my clients or bystanders or uninterested parties. Sure. But if we look at the two point two million, that's probably things like as Zanato Cell's grandfather did, they pull out the gun, they maybe fire, but they intentionally miss because you don't want to actually want to hurt somebody, and the other guy runs away, and that's a use of a firearm that didn't, in quotes, that doesn't get reported in other uses of firearms. If you assume that the 2.2 million represents those sorts of things, it's probably more believable. Kulak. Yeah, and that in America, a country of 330 million, the idea that like 0.5 to 1% of people are like pissed off dads who chase off their daughter's boyfriends or like (laughs) girlfriends who threaten their abusive boyfriends when they're drunk or something like especially in a country with more guns than people that seems plausible xantos and i think to yasin's to yasin's point like the the prototypical best case of self-defense 
is, you know, like a burglar breaks into your house in the night and then you rack a shotgun from the other room and they run off. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to get, that's not going to get caught in any of these statistics. It's uh, unlikely to get caught. I mean, I, I presumably the, the house, the homeowner would call the police and say, yeah, I, I, I did like rack my shotgun. Yeah. And that one, presumably they would report, but also there's just like a lot of towards the lower end of the bell curve. There's a lot of like just dumb shit that happens between like, I won't say friends, but like family and associates <laughs> that like, I, I could totally see that happening just like from the number of, like again bad relationships i've seen where like someone did get threatened with a knife at some point so presumably if there was like a gun in the house house which there would be in the u.s then then the gun would be the weapon used to threaten and and there's a chance that people with felony records are might be carrying firearm more often than people with a clean record and i i'm i have no like real evidence to say this except i have a lot of clients with felony records that keep carrying firearms because their life is in legitimate danger from undesirable elements. And that's not something that's ever going to be reported to police, obviously. Yeah, that, that was something that I was also wanting to talk about a little bit, where like a lot of these, a lot of the you know, studies and articles that you're going to read, like the NPR one, talk about, you know, in the aggregate, self-defense is very, very rare, which, which is probably somewhat true, but different people lead different lives. You know, like you've seen your clients are obviously involved with the law in some way, and that makes them more likely to lead the kind of life where you need self-defense or my grandfather owned a dive bar in a CD part of town. That's obviously going to increase your risk and increase your need for self-defense. Yeah. Just to give like, to illustrate the example, I have a client who kept getting arrested and charged with unlawful possession of a firearm because he has like a, like a petty theft uh, conviction. And I just kept wondering like, why does he keep doing this? Like why, what is his attachment to guns? And he was he was less than honest with me at the beginning, and then later I find out through the prosecutor that he was a material witness in a murder trial, uh, or at least like never got to trial, but he he assisted a detective, and because of his involvement, he was under the impression that he was going to be like given witness protection or something like that, but the public court documents like made it to on Snapchat, and he is in legitimate fear for his life that he has to flee the country because otherwise the only way that he can sustain his exi- his existence uh, in this country is by carrying a firearm because he gets guns pulled on him all the time. Wouldn't he just be able to like move cities or I suppose not if he always, if he's always on probation, he, he can move cities. It's just, he has no family uh, elsewhere. Right. I mean, that's, that's always a big problem. Makes sense. Go ahead, Santos. Where one big problem that I have with firearms for self-defense and one of the reasons that I'm conflicted about this and don't own a gun myself is that if your purpose in owning a gun for, is for self-defense, the statistics overwhelmingly show that you are far, far more likely to use that gun to harm yourself than you are to harm an assailant. Like suicide rates in gun-owning households are significantly higher. And that just seems like it defeats the point, right? If you're going to harm yourself with the weapon that you're trying to use to prevent yourself from being harmed. Sure. And the primary reason why suicide rates are higher is not actually because suicide attempts are higher. It's because more of the guns successfully kill you. It's a lot harder to fail at committing suicide when you're using a firearm. Kulak, you wanted to say something? I was going to say, and this is what you'll hear from the people who do own 
guns is that they don't personally think that they want to commit suicide. So, so like, er, I know I'm not, I'm not a depressive sort. That doesn't apply to me. And B, like, they find it qualitatively different. Like, the idea that they might have their life taken from them by someone else versus the idea that they might choose to dispose of it in a certain way. They'd say, yes, it's a useful tool. And if I wanted to use it to do that, I would be successful at it. Yeah, I definitely agree with the with the second half of that. You know, there's like there's a there's a qualitative feeling difference, but at the same time, you you can't survey the people. You can survey the people who own guns right now and think that they're not a depressive sort, but you can't survey the people who have you know presumably successfully ended their lives with their own firearm. And then there's the the paranoid conspiracy side of it. Why do you want to take away our means to die? <laughs> what do you have planned for us that would death would be better? Yeah, I just I think that that's something that should like at least weighs on my opinion on should you carry a weapon in self defense is the likelihood of you using that weapon to harm yourself is a factor that a person should consider when they're considering whether to carry or not. No, that definitely is something to consider and definitely part of the decision making process. The other big one that doesn't get talked about enough is if you have like kids in the house, like like presumably you aren't going to be like most American gun owners at least don't lock up their guns. And the ones that do like, presumably the kids are going to find out where the keys are at some point between like five and 15. So like the risk of them screwing around and having a negligent discharge that like critically injures someone or the risk that, yeah, you aren't suicidal, Bob, but your kid might be. That's another thing that, that doesn't get discussed as much. My grandfather is relevant again here. He, my aunt, uh, shot off using that same gun that he carried with the dive bar. My aunt shot off the tip of her pinky finger when she was like nine with it. Oh man, that's some Jesse James stuff right there. He was missing the nub of his finger because he, apparently when you're a cowboy and you're learning how to rotate your revolver and do the trick stuff, you really shouldn't do that with it loaded. (laughs) All right. So uh, pivoting away from just talking about firearms, uh, let's consider the the rest of the self-defense universe. Anyone want to give an overview? Admin? Sure. There are roughly three major genres of um, the rest of the self-defense universe. Roughly speaking, summarized as knives, pepper spray, and martial arts. <laughs> you know, knives being fairly lethal tools that you have in the house. Pepper spray representing all the non-lethal uh, self-defense tools that they sell, like pepper spray being the most famous but there's also like small maces and like deer repellent and stuff which just is really annoying and you run away i guess you can uh maybe include stun guns within that category yeah i think stun guns are in the pepper spray category you know not actually tools of violence but tools of running away Mm -hmm. that's what a like a pepper spray category would be and then the third category is martial arts which is I don't have any weapons. I'm just going to use my hands and feet to protect myself from some guy. Yeah. So <laughs> how about we start with martial arts? Um, I'm, I'm laughing because I don't really see it as a viable self-defense strategy because it, it can be easily trumped. It, it requires a lot of work, a lot of training, years of training, years of maintenance. And it's fairly easy for you to, to like play, to end up on the losing side of the rock, paper, scissors, gambit. Because, you know, all you, all you need to, to negate years of training is just to have a knife. And martial arts are only effective for a small segment of the population, right? Like, yes. 
it doesn't matter how if you're a nine nine don black belt if your opponent has if you're like you know a young lady and your opponent has 150 pounds on you edmund do you want to defend it because i know i know you're into sorry i had to like get sources before so this is john fitch a a professional mma fighter doing um knife training Mm -hmm. yeah so i mean the, the general expectation for dealing with a knife is expect to be stabbed yeah is generally the advice given well so his point is the strategy you look at he gets stabbed like three times in his yeah. knife fights and that's a that's a shock knife not a charcoal knife right, so it right. really hurts which is not the way normal knives work but okay so he so if you look at that method you can see that if you are you know a professional athlete level of skill and a professional athlete level of strength and endurance some random joe who's like above average height and endurance will probably lose to you if they brandish a knife on you now mm -hmm. that being said we have to realize that that's you know just some rant me versus my my mother with a knife i would lose every time level you know knives are really dangerous but the point of martial arts as a viable defense mechanism is mostly for like drunk people at bars or other people who are just being obnoxious and aggressive but aren't mm -hmm. actually planning on causing major harm or at least right. they're just you know people with anger issues or whatever and you can see like the the huffington beach thing where you have chuck liddell grabbing people there's also um things where you just put a guy to the ground and you just sit on them and hold them down until they calm down this is what mm -hmm. martial arts are good at it's not about hurting people it's about getting people safely to calm down after and de-escalating otherwise violent situations. It's not about hurting people. It's about not hurting people. Yeah. And admittedly, in terms of situations, you're far more likely to encounter a belligerent drunk individual that wants to fight rather than be in a, in a life or death situation involving a gun. If I may speak in defense of martial arts, the scenario of like, all right, disarm someone who's wielding a knife with your bare hands, like probably is like a fantasy scenario to begin with. Like if someone brandishes a knife at you in a bar, the first thing you do is like throw your mug of beer in their face or like jump back, grab a bar stool and then start breaking their neck. <laughs> neck. Like it does seem that like broad physical fitness like managing distance and stuff it feels like it should translate into a melee with a series of improvised and brought weapons but like obviously that's not something they can train like throwing mugs of throwing glasses <laughs> of beer in people's faces you know grabbing pitchers from the table next to you and like shoving the glass in their eyes or something and cool like i, I think this was based on a post that you made regarding um the element of surprise in wartime and how you never, you almost never have like face-to-face -face combat. It's always about outflanking your enemy and catching them unaware, right? Yeah, pretty much. Like, like the phrase "the best defense is a good offense" is like a saying for a reason. The long post we can maybe link it. Um, the effectiveness of rifle fire across cultures. Yeah. That's the one. When you get down to it, if someone draws a knife on you, you're going to run away and come back with something bigger. The only scenario in which you're going to continue to stand and fight someone is the scenario where you think you have an insane advantage or it's some weird sport for some weird reason. Like, there's a reason the Italian mobsters 
were able to whack endless series of people who were more fit or more trained or just not morbidly obese than them. And the reason they were able to do that was they always got the drop on the guy. The guy was sitting in a restaurant and ice pick in the back of the head, or the guy was sitting in his car and someone shot him. Yeah, I think this is like an aspect that is often ignored when talking about self-defense use, in that if you are going to be the victim of a crime, it's far more likely for that to happen when you are caught by surprise. So I've had a, a bunch of friends that have been robbed, none of them were like met head on and said with like the person robbing them saying, Hey, give me your money. They almost all were like sucker punched from behind. Um, one, like my friend had his like cheekbone broken because of that. When someone tried to steal his phone and a few of my clients have engaged in kind of similar tactics because there's just no advantage to announcing to the person, hello, I am about to rob you. Please comply. If if uh, you can catch them unaware, then you accomplish everything, but significantly minimize the risk. Xantos. I also think that one one point that I, I wanted to also get in here is that especially the you know being like a fit man gets you like seventy five percent of the way there in terms of self defense. Mm-hmm. Like you, just by having physical capacity, like you know John Fitch, obviously very physically active and able person looks like chuck liddell just from this thumbnail also seems like he's a, he's a buff guy tall buff guy you know that already puts you like head and shoulders above any assailant that is likely to be attacking you you know but there's a there's a substantial fraction of the population who need to engage in self-defense who don't have the advantage of being you know a tall buff guy yeah and i, I mentioned this uh, i believe that, that this is a, a form of irony and or i don't know I find it to be a puzzling situation. Uh, and I mentioned this at first where I'm six two, I'm 200 pounds. I'm not like in the top quintile of people that are like most susceptible to being assaulted. There is this like weird discrepancy, even just looking at the gender divide where men are far more likely to carry a firearm uh, than women, even though they're far less likely, I guess, to be susceptible to an attack. And I always find that puzzling. I, I guess the only explanation is it's just like this cultural norm where women are discouraged from taking up arms. Yeah, especially when that's the type of person who most needs something to level the playing field in a self-defense situation, right? Mm-hmm. Kulak. So part of this is just maybe my expectation of like like what I expect to deal with in my lifetime versus most people's expectations. But um one of the things that I consistently notice is how different the training and like the mindset training for martial arts is compared to what like military or, or operators who expect to be going into dangerous situations at train. So for example, as far as I can tell, CIA officers or foreign service types really don't receive much hand-to-hand training, if any. And even police officers, feds don't receive too much hand-to-hand compared to everything else. What they do focus on is situational awareness, mindset, the OODA loop, being in a situation where they know what's coming at them or they're aware of where the threat's coming off from. So not sitting in a shady bar with your back to the biker gang, parking your car so that you can immediately drive away. You don't have to back out knowing if a 
shady white van is coming up behind you and two guys might jump out and cattle prod you and haul you away. Like, there's a ton of mindset stuff like that right down to and selecting clothing that's going to give you protection versus not give you protection that really isn't focused on in self-defense, but that would be pretty decisive in any genuine self-defense situation where it's not, am I going to get my nose broken? It's, am I going to survive? Go ahead, Xantos. I was just going to say, I I think that that goes to kind of Yassine's point where martial arts training, A, takes a ton of time, and B, you know, somebody with 2,000 hours of martial arts practice, those 2,000 hours bear absolutely nothing on the situation the second the other guy pulls out a handgun. Yeah, I have a, I have like a big, big problem with how martial arts are advertised, especially to vulnerable individuals, like generally women, uh, as this like empowerment thing where all you need is just to learn martial arts and then you can defend yourself from, from any man. And it's, that's just like delusional It's delusional thinking to, and dangerous thinking to make people believe that they have, they have a, a chance to protect themselves using those tools. Uh, there's a video that I'll, I'll find the link and like post it in the show notes about just kind of like the ludicrously bad tactics that are taught to women. Like for example, intentionally putting yourself on the ground to like try to perform a grapple is just like really, really dumb shit uh, that just puts people in like far more uh, vulnerable position. I have seen like a successful self-defense video from like a woman, but she was a, she was an MMA fighter and she got attacked by a man uh, randomly and like his ass got like flattened by her. But I think that was largely uh, an element of surprise from him going, what the fuck? I didn't, I didn't expect this. Intentionally falling yourself on the ground is a legitimate tactic. But that's almost always used in very rare situations. And the reason you do that is that you can grab someone by the leg and then spin and then you break their leg. But that's re- that needs to be done in like less than a second. Uh, yeah, I, I have no confidence that like a random woman that has taken a handful of self-defense classes is going to be able to successfully execute a, a leg breaking maneuver. That's ridiculous. And I, I love that that video, Edmund, just because you can see exactly the moment when this is the the Lucia Riker versus like another a male kickboxer. Song Chai Heidi, he's a was the champion of New Zealand, which is not a very big country. In These are like two trained individuals, obviously, and you can see like the first part of the fight. You know, they're exchanging some blows, and then he gets hit like twice, realizes that she has absolutely no like power to any of her punches and just eats the next six punches while demolishing her. And like the difference in physical capability is just so immense that being trained doesn't make up for it. And Lucia Riker, by the way, is the best female kickboxer and boxer to have ever lived, probably. So this is not some like big joke of a fight. And then the person she fought is her weight class. So this isn't even like a weight mismatch. This is just, no, sorry. You're not gonna win. Kulak. Well, this is part of the thing that a lot of the things that would be decisive even in a common hand-to-hand fight that you usually envision when you take a self-defense class isn't things like who studied which school of martial arts. It's who wore Doc Martens that morning and who wore sandals. Yeah. It's also who's bigger. It's such a big impact. There's a reason why every martial art has weight divisions and the weight divisions are like 10 pounds each. So Kulak, Portland, Portland would win in a street fight against LA. 10 out of 10. (laughs) Yeah. Like you never want to, 
as soon as you get in a fight, the first thing you'd want to do, assuming it wasn't like a friendly fight, is get something in your hands so you aren't fighting with your bare hands. I wanted to finish with the last part, which is the only real practical use of martial arts, which is subduing people like that as a video shown. I'm enjoying this genre of videos. <laughs> this is the most practical use of like martial arts for the average individual that's going to actually be used, where you have a drunk guy, they're being very aggressive, you hold them down, you get them to calm down. That's sort of what what martial arts are good for. They're not good for actually fighting people who are actually going to try to hurt you. They're not good for that sort of thing. They're more good for being situationally aware, being physically fit, and subduing drunk people who are being annoying. Not for actually defending yourself from actual criminals. But I think for the average person, the scenario I showed above where Matt Sarah subdued some drunk guy with BJJ is com- much more common than fighting a, a criminal. Right. I've fought five different people in bar, well, outside of a bar because of being in a shady area. And I use tactics like that to just hold the guy, mostly hugging actually, and just hold them down until they calm down. And that's sort of where real fighting is. Right. Uh, the only, the only fight I've ever been in as an adult happened at a house party of mine. And I was wearing a, I don't know if I want to retell the whole story, (laughs) but I just happened to be wearing a rig James wig and when I, my friend got attacked from behind by this dude. And when I saw it, I tried punching the dude, but the Rick James wig got into my eyes and I couldn't see anything anymore. Uh, and then we all ended up on the ground and he was trying to execute some sort of grapple and I was trying to disentangle everyone. And what I ended up doing was like trying to force compliance by punching him in the back of the skull. And it just, it didn't work because I just fucked up my, my wrist instead. So I, I, I mean, at least like, N equals one. That's like my observation. The only fight I've ever been in involved alcohol at a party. Yeah. All five of the fights have been involved alcohol outside of a bar. Right. All hundred of the fights I've been in involved being in grade school. And we're <laughs> settling this at, at the corner. <laughs> so you'd beat each other until one person was crying and pissed off. Then they'd like choke Someone that would be, no, you're killing him, and someone would run in and shove that person off, and then those two people would fight and break out into a brawl, and then there would be side fights that happened because someone insulted someone's mother. And then, yeah, the neighborhood Karen would drive by and we'd all get reported reported to the principal, and, and everyone would turn rat on everyone else instantly. And this happened weekly. Xantos, you wanted to say something about pepper spray? Yeah. So we, we, we talked about martial arts and the situations in which it's useful versus not useful. And it's like one step up from having no weapon to defend yourself is like having a non-lethal weapon like pepper spray or a taser. Pepper spray being like very common, especially for women to use to defend themselves. And I just think it's absolutely like useless shit. If you're going to defend yourself, you should probably, you ideally want to have superior force at your disposal, right? That's how you, you know, win the fight and make sure that you're going to be okay. And any self-defense situation that you're you're in, you want to to be able to be to use force enough to make the other person not able to use force on you. And pepper spray is absolutely awful for that. I mean, not only can it actually backfire and harm you rather than your assailant if you use it wrong or if the wind is blowing or if it's just not good pepper spray, but it doesn't really have like stopping power at the level of, you know, a knife or a firearm. Yeah, obviously. But the big, big benefit of pepper spray is that it's broadly illegal. 
with no real significant restrictions in terms of where you can have it. Well, yeah, that, that goes, that's like my, that's my final point, which is that, you know, this is something that the government uses on college students semi-regularly, you know? Yeah. <laughs> is that really what you want to put the life, put your life on the line with? So you're saying if you really want to defend your life, you buy the pepper spray, you take out the spray and you replace it with bleach. <laughs> I thought the purpose of pepper spray and stuff like it was that you would just spray the person and run. It's not about yeah. It's not about actually doing anything with long. I actually have a case where uh, my client used pepper spray on multiple people, and it is. I've seen the body worn footage of the aftermath. It is extremely debilitating. You just kind of see them running away, crying, uh, desperately trying to put water, and then crying because that's just making it worse. They're they're useless uh, for a long time afterwards. I mean, maybe that was top quality pepper spray because my the same the same aunt that shot her finger off actually uh, she had like maybe a year ago got mugged on her way home from work and she carried pepper spray on her keychain. Mm-hmm. She pepper sprays the guy. He wipes his eye with one hand and then grabs <laughs> her purse and beats the shit out of her. Oh. It like did absolutely nothing. Right, but I mean, the concerns here is that there's there's so many different considerations for which tactic that you want to use. Obviously a gun is is the best in terms of lethality and finality. Like you you know what you're getting yourself into if you pull out a gun. Uh but it's not it's not legal in every in everywhere you go. A knife is, you know, a step down from that, but that's also not allowed everywhere you go. So you have to make do with these compromises in terms of how effective they are. How 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 often can I carry it? Where can I take it? How easy is it to deploy? And that's necessarily going to be a compromise between one of the factors. You know, we've talked about the practicalities of what an individual could slash should do for self-defense. Um, but then I think there's also like ethical questions and normative questions about what they should do. So maybe like the best vehicle to address those those questions would be to look at actual cases. So just as as a vehicle, as a foil for this discussion, let's consider Kyle Rittenhouse of the Kenosha, Wisconsin shooting. I don't know if I even need to give a background. Kyle Rittenhouse is a 17-year-old uh, armed with an AR-15. He was there during uh, the George Floyd protests uh, the summer guarding supposedly his workplace. He got attacked by one person. He killed that person. He started running away towards the police. And in the process of running away, he tripped, was lunged upon, and attacked by several people. He ended up shooting three people, killing two of them. And now he's on trial for murder. In my mind, and I say this based on the assumption that I have like all the relevant evidence, I saw it as a clear case of self-defense. And clear in the sense that it was extremely proportional and narrowly tailored to the situation at hand. And even though he didn't have to leave the scene, he was trying to retreat from the place, but he got attacked by one person had a skateboard that he was using as a weapon. And the other one had a, a handgun on his hand. He used, uh, the person with the handgun had his bicep shot off by Rittenhouse. I looked at it from the standpoint of how a jury would look at it, also how it would play out in uh, legal proceedings. And I just, I saw it as crystal clear, but the situation obviously has been interpreted as a, as a scissor statement in that some people see it as, you know, extremely irresponsible. And at least the prosecutor believes that they have probable cause to pursue murder charges. Or they believe that they're going to receive some benefit by initiating a prosecution regardless, or that they'd suffer consequences by not doing it. Right. Is anyone like not on Rittenhouse's side? 
I mean, he probably acted in self-defense, but he probably shouldn't have carry, been carrying a gun in the first place, and he probably should have gone home. Yeah. But that's, like, not, you know, is not illegal to make bad decisions. Xantos, how do you feel? Yeah, I, I agree with basically everything that you wrote in this mod post. I think that the big criticism that maybe is valid, certainly not valid from, like, a legal standpoint, is that, you know, he shouldn't have been there in the first place and that his motivations to be there were somewhat questionable, at least. Yeah, I wish we had a representation to Steelman the argument that he was not acting in self-defense. It sort of does bleed into a parallel argument in that he shouldn't have been there to begin with, which I'm more, much more sympathetic to. I think, you know, going back to what I said earlier about LARPing, I think it's just weird for a 17-year-old to, to go, quote-unquote, protect a workplace with an AR-15. I just, I'm, I have like so many questions. I just wonder, what do you think is, is happening here? Why is this important to you? Like, why, why are you involved in this to begin with? I don't, I don't, I don't understand that part. Xantos, go ahead. I think that it's, it's so much of like a, a media thing where we kind of, there, there was another incident where a Bernie bro shot a Trump supporter and killed him and then later got killed by the police and had an interview on Vice. Okay, he was not he was not a Bernie bro. Or at least I never saw any evidence that he was a Bernie bro. You can say he was affiliated with Antifa. He was okay, he was affiliated with Antifa. Maybe I'm mixing up my my cases here. Yeah. But in any case, I think that there's like a lot of the reason that Rittenhouse and people like that are in these situations armed to begin with is that there's like a there's a national narrative of, you know, armed conflict and these are people who wish you death. Right. And so mm-hmm. because if somebody legitimately wishes you death and they're armed, that's not a situation that calls for de-escalation. That's a situation that calls for violence. Right. Whereas if it's just two people that disagree, then that's a situation that calls for de-escalation. Right. But the de-escalation in this situation would happen ahead of time. Like, just don't don't get involved to begin to begin with. Correct. Kulak. So in defense of Kyle Rittenhouse's decision to be there that night, morally, we've seen Countless armed protests, the Boogaloo Boys, the Proud Boys, um, the Not Fucking Around Coalition armed protest is a present and really important part of American culture at this point. And one I defended, it's protected under 2A and it sends a very powerful statement that this is something you're concerned about in that if need be, you're willing to fight over. That's a very important message to be able to send in a democracy where the question of majoritarian politics versus minority rights is always under question. Right. I'm just going to interrupt real quick. I'm, I'm in agreement with the optics uh, of, of firearms at protests. And, you know, I've, I have receipts to show in that I participated in that as well. But I, I still see it as more, you know, justified LARPing or more of a political theater rather than something that has like practical considerations from a safety standpoint. Because I think it just creates, uh, adds chaos. So with regards to Rittenhouse, what I'd say is there were tons of active protests in Kenosha that night, armed protests in many circumstances, protesting for the BLM cause and various other causes. And Rittenhouse, in conjunction with a bunch of other people, showed up in essentially making a political statement that they were going to clean up and stand watch over their places of employment, that they liked their town and what was there. You can argue with the political statement, but it seems that Rittenhouse was there making a political statement just as much as everyone else. And it's a political statement I respect. Yeah, the pushback I would have in that situation is if, if it was the owner of the workplace 
then that feels like more justified. But when it's just a, like a 17 year old kid who has a, a tenuous connection with the workplace, then, then I'm more suspicious. And I start to think that it's more performative motivation than anything else. I'd say a big part of that is kind of the people from somewhere versus the people from cities who don't quite have that attachment to place in smaller communities. The, the emotional attachment you have to say an employer or or the businesses around your employers or just people you know is far stronger. I'm from a relatively small town and I can tell you that if I thought someone was going to burn down the hardware store here or I thought that was a risk, I might go out armed and be willing to fight or shoot over it because I know the people who own the hardware store. I know I've known the fam- the previous family who owned the hardware store for like three generations. That, that kind of goes, Kulak, to, to a question that I had going into this, which was, I wonder if we could draw like some, some lines in the sand about when self-defense should or should not be justified. Like presumably if you murder somebody and then somebody else, you know, tries to attack you, you killing that second person would not be self-defense or wouldn't be justified self-defense. It kind of depends on the circumstances. And I had a, I had a mop post that kind of went into that because I think uh, it, it, the fact that the Rittenhouse homicides happened in bifurcated episodes adds an interesting wrinkle to the analysis because the people that he shot on the second phase were chasing after him because people around him were yelling, hey, grab that guy. He just shot someone. So they had no connection to the initial uh, altercation, the first uh, homicide. They didn't know what was going on. They just see a guy with a gun running away. It would be important to note the motivations that they had and how they were driven potentially by delusions because they somehow ingrained themselves this idea that, oh, you can you can easily like take down a guy with a gun if you have like enough will or enough people because you have this guy like going after him with a skateboard. And then another guy that tries to like drop kick him uh, and he didn't get shot, but he almost could have been. And it's just this uh, lesson that I want to impress upon people. Like, you know, don't fuck around with people with firearms. You're going to most likely lose. Even the guy with the pistol got shot, had his bicep blown off. Xantos, Zan- go ahead. Somebody posted, I can't remember if it was here in the mod. There was a post a couple of weeks ago about some Twitter thread where a shooter walked into a classroom and told all the guys to leave because he was going to kill the women the polytechnique massacre and any anyway like the the prop this this one person's twitter commenter was proposing that like all the guys should band together and rush the the gunman and i think that you've like the kyle rittenhouse example is a is a clear example of what happens when that's the idea we'll post about this this is a the école polytechnique massacre this was a, a mass shooting that happened in 1989 where uh this guy he walks into an engineering school tells all the men to leave and all the women to stay. The men comply and leave. I think there were about 50 men and the guy ends up killing 15 women, 14 of them by gunfire, one by stabbing. And this was this like, in my opinion, like a, just like horrendously disgusting tweet where the onus was put on the man for not doing something for just complying instead of doing something to to take down the shooter. Uh, obviously, there's like a different context in 1989. Like mass shootings were not understood to be at the forefront of being a social phenomenon. But just practically, even if you understand this to be like a, a life or death situation, I think people have like this outsized confidence in being able to take down a gunman. And that plays out. I mean, you see the effects of this with the Rittenhouse homicides. In the Rittenhouse case, part of what I thought was going on in the psychology 
of the the people who chased down Rittenhouse was they had essentially seen so many armed protesters do nothing for so long that they assumed if he has a gun, he, he'll never use it. Mm-hmm. Especially in June of 2020, after the, the rioting in, in Minneapolis and elsewhere, people had kind of built up an expectation that if you saw someone with a gun, they were the unserious protesters because they weren't going to burn shit down and get into fights. They're the people who were just going to stand around while while other people did that. And part of that expectation I thought built up because these were people who in many cases were unarmed or only had handguns or melee weapons who quite probably were committing some vandalism or getting into fights or looking to get into fights and maybe had started some fires that night. And they looked at, as far as I can tell, Rittenhouse's 17-year-old boomer con saw a baby-faced red driver with a, a rifle and assumed this person will never fight back. Yeah. And that psychology was a massive part of it. And I, if I may be controversial, I think a massive part of the outrage was that he did shoot back when, when left-wingers attacked him. Yeah. Go ahead, Xantos. I mean, yeah, I, I, I second that, Kulak. I think there was, I saw several takes where people were like unironically suggesting that he should have just let his head get bashed with a skateboard a couple of times instead of shooting somebody. Yeah. I think there, there is this like bizarre uh, expectation that has settled. I think it's also in display with um, uh, what happened in New Mexico around the protests surrounding a, a, a toppling of a statue. This individual, Stephen Baca, was chased and surrounded and attacked by multiple people before he pulled out a gun and, and shot one of them. And I, I see, I recognize this like kind of disbelief. It's like I can't believe he would shoot someone who was attacking him. And I'm, I find that just you know completely puzzling and mystifying. And I, I echo. Kulak's point in that people are outraged that they would deign to defend themselves. Yeah, it's it's a weird bubble bursting on the crowd mentality. When the person in the crowd is getting close to deciding whether they'd want to lynch or not, when that person pulls out a gun and uses it, there's a very weird psychology to it that I feel has to overlap with cancel culture or or like the psychology around Twitter mobs that the hot take, why didn't he just let himself get beaten, is kind of a hot take that can only exist on Twitter, but it's a hot take, take that must exist on Twitter. Yeah, That's like a perfect springboard into the article that I linked that I wanted to talk a little bit about. Which article are you talking about? Uh, our national daddy complex. <laughs> so the, the the pitch basically is that you know, if you are against self-defense rights, you've got daddy issues, right? Like you think you, your conception of the state is that the state is going to solve all of the problems and that violence is, is beyond the pale. And when, when you have those two beliefs at the same time, then somebody defending themselves seems ridiculous. And it seems like they've done something wrong by not being a, a passive child or a, a passive, you know, sheep that they've by taking action and taking their life into their own hands, they've done something wrong. Yeah, and I'm, I'm noticing some parallels. So one of my longstanding criticism of Antifa is that they operate within this almost like a bubble milieu where engaging in violence is extremely safe for them and extremely dangerous for the quote-unquote other side, whoever they deign to be considered a fascist. And I see a lot of the outrage surrounding Rittenhouse and Baca to fit within this rubric where it's like, wait, that's not fair. Like you're supposed to be helpless and surrounded by dozens of people. Uh, how, how dare you like fire back? That is like an admittedly uncharitable view, but I, I don't have any other way to, to fit this, this uh, notion. I don't have a, a mental model to fit it. And this isn't just you 
looking at people online and drawing a conclusion. This is you've interacted with these people. Yeah, and I mean most of the most of what I'm drawing upon is people online. We, in terms of like my comrades at at the John Brown Gun Club, we we didn't talk about that just because it hasn't come up. I think there's a strong element that I, I'd, I'd second there, which is like rules for thee and not for me. You know where you know violence is uncouth and it must be suppressed, but our violence is okay because we're the ones suppressing the violence, right? Like I can tolerate everything except intolerance. Right. Well. A big motivator for me joining the John Brown Gun Club is because guns were involved. So it wasn't like this like uh, bullshit fight club theater where you just uh, you expect yourself to be like the hero in this uh, physical altercation just by virtue of surprising someone and having like two dozen people that are masked join into the melee. The group that I was in never never had masks, so we were never anonymous, and we we visibly carried firearms. So there was no ambiguity about our, our position, which is why I joined them and, and had such disdain for Antifa or Antifa tactics, whatever you want to call it. And I'd love to have a conversation with someone who believes that either Baca or Rittenhouse didn't act in self-defense and just ask them, well, what would you do if you had an AR-15 and you were about to get bashed in with a skateboard? Sure, they'll say, yeah, you should just like take the blow to the head. But I think eventually it will just walk back to well he shouldn't have been there to begin with kulak the psychology of it that you kind of diagnoses daddy issues santos it's interesting because it seems to overlap with the bader meinhof complex the bader meinhof gang exists in germany they were socialist terrorists which set off bombs do pretty intense and shocking things but it's an excellent movie i highly recommend it to everyone what the film depicts and what i've always kind of seen in socialist terrorist movements is this deep shock that that the government didn't immediately kind of acquiesce and see oh no you were you were completely right and right to do this like they'd set off bombs and then be outraged that they were being treated like prisoners while they were being put on trial bombings and in really weird ways that you obviously like anyone who's being tried for murder would, would assume the cops are bastards or most terrorists would hate their jailers, but but the, instead they'd be generally morally outraged. Not that that the the guards or the other characters weren't living up not to their own standards, but their standards, and would be sh- shocked by this. And it does seem to be a an expectation. I wouldn't say daddy complex. I'd say equation of the state with God or the state with kind of moral righteousness that if you make enough noise and draw the attention of the government, then God has to come in and fix things and make it right. And obviously you were right to do so. And the right winger or the random person drawing a gun and acting self-defense seems to burst that bubble. Yeah, I, I kind of see it. I see that. I see it more, I think, as you know, when you think that you have the, the moral ground, then it's tempting to not consider, you know, other positions to have agency. And especially when you think that the the state, you know, in terms of self-defense, when you think that certain violence is justified, but not other violence, then you end up with like a, you know, a mindset that people with different viewpoints, at least are wrong, and that they're like either sheep, children, and that they shouldn't have the ability or will to defend themselves. It'd be interesting to know whether like there was a similar dynamic with non-rad left ideologies or if it's kind of unique there because it certainly seems that there have existed people and combatants in the past who didn't expect their opponents to roll over or or like weren't outraged that their opponents were fighting back 
Patton with his you magnificent bastard moment and stuff like that, where people did expect their opponents to fight back and were expecting them to behave as agents trying to achieve something. And it's weird that there's this uh, psychology that doesn't expect that. That's something I noticed, you know, with the rise of Antifa as a tactic and the discussion around, you know, whether it's okay to punch Richard Spencer in the face. And then kind of like extended dialogues about when it's okay to punch a Nazi. I, I always found it odd because it does operate within this assumption that you'll just punch this Nazi and the Nazi is not going to fight back. And that's a reasonable assumption if you're like in fucking Portland, because there's going to be like one Nazi for every 200,000 people or whatever. But once you get outside of those milieus, then I mean, I, I want to see someone stick to their guns when it comes to punching Nazis during during the like uh, <laughs> an actual Nazi Germany. Uh, and exactly like what they what they expect to accomplish by just like punching random Nazis. Uh, so I think it does break down and it has to have this assumption that how dare you fight back like this is against the rules like because it breaks this fantasy of just, you know, hitting a punching back that it's not going to hurt you. It is a definite psychology. Like you can point to even terrorist movements that the terrorists weren't particularly outraged that their executioners were coming to execute them. It's, it was just like, yes. That's what I would have expected them to do. Whereas there's, there's. Well, th- okay. So just, sorry to interrupt, but the, the thing I was going to say is when you, when you uh, initiate this like trial by punching by trial by combat, where instead of debating or whatever, or arguing or protesting, it, whenever you accept that punching is an acceptable uh, tactic, then the assumption there is that you can punch harder or you can punch more often uh, or you can punch better and therefore, it's okay to engage in it because it's it's a winning tactic. But it's obviously that's only a winning tactic within like very specific uh, circumstances. Xantos. I was going to say I see a parallel there with like domestic terrorism versus international terrorism. Yeah. Like you have in the IRA, right? There was definitely some sense of outrage that you know Bloody Sunday happens, and then we're going to get you back harder, right? Because you were in the wrong to, you know, kill us. But then at the same time, Al-Qaeda, they don't seem that they're like retaliating against Al-Qaeda. They're like, yeah, we know, we knew what we were getting into when we, when we did this, right. When we initiated violence, it's, it's an interesting, like, it seems like the moral outrage is only an intranational kind of thing. Well, the comparison would be, do the Proud Boys or Patriot Burr people display this, like this outrage that someone would fight back against them and it no <laughs> well they, they they know the stakes they know the game you know yeah yeah that, that's like joey gibson's entire stick is i'm just here for spree, free speech so i i have a rally in portland why are people attacking me <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's not like the the rules of engagement are clear right like it's people aren't surprised but it's weird that the psychology between the two is so different like yes we're going to get attacked punch versus like being surprised the hundredth time you're attacked and punched. Mm. Like it does seem there's a unique division there and doesn't say much about the, the ideologies or I haven't found anything that says, but it does seem very weirdly distinct. And it does seem comparing how the Trump supporters reacted to the various people killed during the, the protests that were normally coded on their side versus the media coverage of Rittenhouse it does also seem kind of a unique break that and an asymmetry that one side expects things to be fair as defined by them, whereas the other side expects things to not be fair or to be competitive. I mean, are they wrong, though? (laughs) 
like Rittenhouse, I think we we've looking at the Rittenhouse case again, like as you've seen kind of laid out in that post and in, you know, this uh, dialogue hard, it's a fairly clear self-defense argument, right? Like certainly it seems clearer than, you know, a George Zimmerman case where there's a lot in the dark. This is like, you have everything on video and you can kind of look at it and see this is probably self-defense and yet he's still being prosecuted Mm -hmm. to the to at least what could be the fullest extent of the law i think beyond the fullest extent and i i said this before like the prosecution of rittenhouse you have to take into account that a lot of prosecutions are just politically motivated and that's not necessarily to impugn the specific prosecutor here but by necessity of the office because it's an elected position usually or accountable to the public in some way you are going to see those motivations to pursue and not pursue particular cases admin even if the case was politically motivated it is still the case that's because you you mr rittenhouse did this then you are being charged now you have to spend all this time in jail actually you got a bond fund so you didn't have to spend time in jail now you have to wait for a trial now you have to spend all this time in a trial and at the end of it you've spent all this time in trials and stuff and you had to pay your lawyers and all this stuff happened to you as a result of doing something justified and my point is you should really try to avoid doing even justified self-defense because it's very likely that you're going to end up in a bad situation after the fact even if you're justified in such as the case yeah i I agree that i think that ties into kind of what i was saying earlier where if you're in a situation where you're going to end up defending yourself with lethal force like ideally you want your life not you don't want your life to be on the line but you should only do that if your life is on the line because there's going to be negative consequences even if you were justified Kulak. Well, yes, but I think that kind of ignores a large portion of it that who does and doesn't get prosecuted is like heavily coded along political lines. Rittenhouse was maybe one of the only people to be charged with a violent crime in the in the past while who hasn't gotten bail. They've been throwing it around like Wait, like candy, especially with regards to the rights. What are you talking about? Uh, oh, um, granted much more easily. Most jurisdictions due to coronavirus and people let out early and i mean so it's true that bail or at least like achievable bail has been granted much more easily during coronavirus Uh, but it's also true that judges are keenly aware of the significant international attention that cases like this receive so i mean putting in like a a quote-unquote normal amount of bail for a similarly situated position is not the same as when you when judges recognize that they're just going to get like an avalanche of donations to deal with the bail. I saw this uh, happen real time where I just happened to be in court for this, where one of the people that was charged was for like interfering with a journalist. And this happened at a protest. The guy sort of like took this woman's uh, camera as she was uh, documenting a protest. He was vaguely affiliated with Antifa uh, and he had no criminal record whatsoever. He didn't seem to cause significant injury to the woman but he still got a hundred thousand dollar bail which surprised me because that just was not the norm and i recognize that it's because uh with the advent of bail funds and gofundme or whatever you can easily like conjure up a ton of money to help you with bail and the judges are like well shit like if he has you know 30 million people on tap that are willing to donate then i I guess i should like make this higher to account for that. Cal Rittenhouse did get out. He got out on $2 million bail. That's ridiculous. Either either he put up $2 million in cash using donations, or he just gave it to 
a bondsman. He gave $200,000 to a bondsman or whatever, or they worked out some sort of deal. There was no question that he was going to be released, even at $2 million bail. Were there political campaigns bailing out riders at points over the summer? Yeah. The, so after after the George Floyd protest, they they had the, a ton of bail funds and they got a, a lot of, of money to the point where they started expanding their mission to be beyond just the uh, protest related and into basically, hey, are you held under under 20,000? Then we'll bail you out no matter what. Anything else to say, Admin? If you ever are in a self-defense situation and you ever actually execute some sort of self-defense maneuver, either injuring the person or, or killing them in the worst case scenario, the only words that should come out of your mouth when you talk to the police are, I want a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, perennial advice. Shut the fuck up when, when the police are questioning you after you're the subject of an investigation. I will repeat the Canadian arch words. Shoot, shovel, shut up. <laughs> Those are the um, heraldic words of Alberta. My conclusion is don't get in dangerous situations. We live in a safe society. You probably won't need to ever defend yourself in your life. Xantos. My conclusion is just that carry a knife for self-defense at all times. And if you are against self-defense protections, then you have daddy issues. <laughs> and yes, don't, don't fucking talk to the police. Well, I, I should qualify that. Don't talk to the police unless you're promoting the Bailey podcast. Correct.